Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you curious about how to make a curved cabinet door? Do you want to know if a combination plane might be useful for your work? Do you struggle sawing straight with a handsaw? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thank you for joining me for episode 22 of the show for March 21st, 2018. Before I start today's show, just want to take a minute to thank Brian Steinberger, who signed up as a new patron of the show over at Patreon. And thanks to all the folks who continue to support the show over on Patreon and make it possible to keep the show going. There are quite a few of you, um, and I appreciate all of your support. Uh, if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. And now the patron extra shows are video extras, and the topics covered in the videos are patron requests. So I hope you'll consider becoming a patron and helping the show grow. So I don't really have too much going on in the shop this week. I uh, have done some work up on the cabin, but not a whole lot of progress to share. You probably, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you know, you probably noticed that my feed's been kind of slow recently. I haven't had a, a whole lot of time to do much, uh, just too many other things going on. And uh, the weather hasn't been cooperating real well. So, um, but uh, hopefully getting back to working on the cabin a bit this weekend uh, maybe back in the shop next week. We'll, we shall see. But uh, anyway, let's get into our listener questions for this week. The uh, first question comes from Robbie Wright. And Robbie says, I want to make a small cabinet, about 12 by 18 by 5 inches to hold some awards. I'd like to make the cabinet at a curly maple with a curved front, but I need some help on making the front door. The glass will have an 18-inch radius. To match that, I need to curve the two styles about an inch. Out here on the West Coast, thick curly maple comes at a dear premium if you can find it at all. So I'd like to make a curved lamination and veneer it with curly maple. Do you see any issues with creating my lamination stack with two resawn veneers on the front and back? Any ideas how to make the edges of the lamination match the rest? The best I can come up with is to take a piece of the curly maple stock and saw it to match the curve of the piece and glue one on each edge, then make my tenons to connect the rails. Because of the size of the cabinet, I'm thinking about making the rails and styles of the door about a half to five-eighths of an inch. The rails will need some minor work to match the rest of the curve of the front. I'm thinking of just making the styles a full three-quarter inch thick for now and planing them to match the curve uh, hopefully ending up with the correct thickness when I'm done. So uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand you said you need to, you need to curve the styles about an inch. And I'm not sure if you mean you need to curve the rails about an inch. Um, so uh, da, 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 yeah, 
Um, the rails, so the in a cabinet door, just so that we're clear, that so that everyone's clear, the styles would be the vertical pieces and the rails would be the horizontal pieces. So I'm not sure, Robbie, if I'm misunderstanding your question or if you got mixed up on the terminology or what, but um, the way I like to remember it is that styles, you know, they start with an S, they stand, they stand vertical. Um, and then the rails, you know, the rails run horizontally. So, um, but anyway, so it sounds like you, at any rate, you want to make a curved frame and panel door, essentially. It's going to be a glass panel with a radius. So you've got two curves that you have to worry about. The rails have to be arched so that the horizontals are going to have to be arched to match the curve of that glass. And then it sounds like you want to curve the styles, the vertical pieces as well. Um, so here's what I'll say about that. So the, the first thing, let's, let's talk about the rails. So you want to make them out of curly maple. Um, thick curly maple, yeah. So I would try my darndest to try and find. You want to make them out of half to five-eighths of an inch thick. So I would try to find four-quarter inch curly maple if I could. Um, you shouldn't have a problem finding four-quarter stock. And what I would do would be to do a bent lamination. Um, so, you, and you can do it two ways. You can, I mean, you could try to steam it and bend them, but I think that's going to be a little bit unpredictable. And for such a small cabinet, you know, you're trying to match the radius of a, of a curved piece of glass. So I think steam bending is going to be a little bit too unpredictable. Um, but you can certainly try it. And that would allow you to use just a single piece of stock, um, and, you know, you'd have to kind of plan for a little bit of spring back and then hope that it doesn't spring back too much and hope that you can make two pieces that are consistent. Um, I think it might be kind of tough to steam bend for a cabinet door, especially one that does, that's that small and get everything to line up and the door to close properly. Um, I think what I would want to do would be to go with a bent lamination made out of solid stock. Um, and there's this solves two problems, actually. So... If you make a form that is the right radius for the, to match the glass and you resaw that stock for your rails, for your, uh, the horizontal pieces of that cabinet door, resaw that stock down to pieces that are about an eighth of an inch thick, maybe even a little thinner if you can get a little thinner than that, um, and then keep them in order that you resaw them as you saw each piece, keep them in that order and then glue them all back together, clamped to a form. So that way um, you can, you can uh, glue that curve into the pieces. And this solves two problems. First, you get a good radius. You'll, you really won't have any spring back from a bent lamination like that because the glue will hold everything in place. So you can, you can make two two rails that are very consistent. Um, the second thing is it solves this whole veneering problem. You're talking about um, putting veneer on the fronts and the backs, and then what do you do with the edges? Well, if you can use four-quarter stock and saw everything out of four-quarter stock, all, all your veneer pieces, and then glue them back together and just glue up enough of those eighth-inch thick pieces that you get your half inch to five eighth inch thick rail, 
um, once it's glued into that that laminated that bent lamination, um, then you clean everything up. You don't have to veneer it. The edges match very nicely because you kept all of those veneer sheets in order and just glued everything right back together. So the edges match nicely. You get consistent grain and color on the edges and the faces because you don't have to worry about um, pieces coming from different pieces of wood, um, you, you know, your different pieces of veneer. So I think I would lean towards doing a bent lamination at a solid maple. Um, and that way, you know, four quarter should be enough. And even if you can't get enough veneers out of a single piece of four quarter to end up with a half inch to five eighth, five eighth inch thick um, bent lamination, you could always add a couple of veneers from a second resawn piece on the inside face, and that would kind of minimize any any of that grain variation on the edges, um, and it would probably match up pretty pretty darn good. Um, so I think that's the way that I would go. You know, unless you can get really thick curly maple and saw that curve out of a solid piece of stock, um, I would tend to go with the bent lamination. Laminating out of a cheaper material and veneering with maple, you could certainly go that route. Um, but you're going to take chances of damaging that veneer when you then go to saw the tenons and you could do the tenons first and then veneer later. But I think you're just creating a lot of extra unnecessary work. Um, whereas if you just do a bent lamination out of solid, you know, four quarter curly maple, um, you, you then you don't have to worry about the veneering at all. In terms of the styles, um, you're going to need a, a slight curve along those styles, but that curve, I mean, if you've got an 18 inch radius, um, and your styles are say, you know, an inch, it's, it's a fairly narrow cabinet. You know, if it's only going to be about a 12 inch wide cabinet, you know, I would imagine those styles are only going to be maybe an inch wide each, um, roughly. So you're, you're not talking about really curving the, those much. I think what I would do to, to get the curve in the styles would be to glue the door up in the solid um, and finesse the curve of the styles afterwards with some some scrapers um, and maybe a, a curved sanding block because you really shouldn't have to put a whole lot of curve into the styles themselves. And trying to get the curve across the width of a one-inch wide style to match the curve of that um, the radius of the, the rails, I think is going to be tough to do when the pieces are not assembled. And I think what you'll find is that if you just make your rails, uh, sorry, your styles flat and then glue everything together, I think what you're going to find is that, um, the, that one inch area of the styles really doesn't need much work to make it match the rest of the radius. So I think I would tend to try and add the curve to the styles after the, the door is assembled, um, or at least dry assemble it, um, without the glass in place. And then, uh, cause I don't know, I don't know how you don't mention how you're going to put the glass in, whether you're going to put a rabbit in the back and, and clips. If you are going to do that, then I would go ahead and just glue the door up and then just finesse the curves of the styles after everything's glued up. Cause I really don't think you're going to have to do much, add much curve to the styles. Um, if you are going to put the glass in a groove and the glass is going to have to be added before you glue everything up, um, then I would say just dry clamp everything together 
um, and and try to finesse the curve with everything assembled rather than trying to get the curve of the styles just right um, on their own and then and trying to get them to match the curve of the rails. Uh, I think you're going to have a better luck getting everything to match up if you uh, glue it together first and then try to finesse the curve of the styles after that. So our next question is from Scott Adams. Scott says, last month I went to Lowe's and picked out my first 16-foot 2x12 for Chris Schwartz's knockdown Nicholson bench. I had them cut at the store and got them home and down in the basement and placed them on edge on top of some half-inch stickers. Both 8-foot pieces got a serious crook in them, meaning the face went concave at least a half an inch. I obviously can't afford to have a stack of worthless boards. Is there anything I can do to prevent this? And what about to correct the pieces that are already warped? I've been trying to work out how I could use the two boards I have for other purposes, but the way they warped is odd. It almost looks like a kink in a saw, where you have a straight section and then the kink and then straight again. One kink, one has a kink right at the end, so I can use that as a bottom board for the top, but the other has a kink right in the middle. I can probably use one wonky board for the chop on the leg vise, planing stop, maybe some blocking or bracing. I anticipated this project taking uh, several several months and buying several boards, but I don't know what else I could use bad boards for if I got any more. Any tips on picking out the boards, storing them that might prevent warping? I also thought about joining jointing the edges of the kink boards and then clamping any new boards perpendicular to the jointed edges as they dried. I was thinking how they band lumber as it dries to prevent warping. Do you think it would help? Okay, so let's address... Let's address each of these in turn. So let's, I first want to talk about, um, you know, jointing the edges and then clamping them to other boards to help prevent warping. Um, it might help a little bit, but for the most part, as soon as you, if, if a board wants to warp, it's going to warp. And in construction lumber, you really can't prevent it. You know, it's, it's not dry when you buy it and usually has a, a good bit of reaction wood in it because there's lots of knots in construction lumber. They don't bother, you know, cutting clear stuff. So knots create reaction wood. Um, the They don't care where the trees come from. A lot of times they're cut from hillsides or windy areas and that creates reaction wood. So construction lumber is just very, very unpredictable. Um, and again, in terms of trying to clamp out the warp or, or clamp them until they dry and then hope that prevents the warp. Really, that's only going to work until you take the clamps off. As soon as you take the weight off the stack, it's going to warp again. I mean, just look at the boards in the home center. They come when they arrive. They're nice and bundled together, nice and tight. Everything looks perfect and nice and flat. And they take the uh, they take those band the straps, shipping straps off of that bundle of lumber. And uh, as long as there's a good amount of weight, those bottom boards stay nice and flat until, you know, a few layers get taken off the top and then they start to move. And, you know, there's always, after uh, after a couple of weeks sitting in the store there, you look and that all of a sudden that pile of lumber is junk because, you know, a lot of it has has warped. Even though it was clamped nice and flat when it got there, it, it's now warped because once you take the clamps off, it's going to move. If the boards want to move, they're going to move and you just, you can't stop it. But you can still use those boards. Um, you know, you didn't really mention whether or not you were going to plan to use them for the top or not, but it sounds like you've got a few more boards to buy anyway. 
So what I would recommend for the boards that are already warped is that you use those for your smaller pieces. And especially the way you say the one warped, it's straight and then it kinks and then it's straight again. That's a prime candidate for cutting up into shorter pieces, you know, to use for bracing underneath the top, for uh, stretchers, for legs, for whatever. Because even though they kinked about a half an inch, if you've got straight sections on either side of the kink, um, and if you take that eight foot length and, uh, and cut it down into shorter sections, that kink may now only be about an eighth of an inch um, instead of a half an inch. And if, you know, if you're going to make thicker legs and you take two of those sections and you take the kinked, the, uh, the, the warped sides, and you clamp those two warped sides together and glue them together that way, um, the, the two warped faces will counteract each other and you'll end up with a pretty straight leg. So I think that's what I would recommend doing with the boards that you already have is cutting them into smaller boards for uses other parts, legs, stretchers, things like that. Now, in terms of buying future boards, uh, what I would say is when you shop for your boards, really think about how you want to use them. Um, you know, for the really wide boards for your top, they're going to be wide, they're going to be straight and long. So you really want minimal movement in those. And in order to get that, you know, I like to use personally the widest boards that I can find. I don't, I don't like to glue up boards for a top if I don't have to. And if I do have to, I don't want it to be more than two or three boards. Um, I don't like the whole laminating process where you rip boards down into, you know, three to four inch wide pieces, turn them on edge and then, you know, glue them up to make a wide slab. To me, that's a royal pain in the butt. It's fine if you've got a table saw and you've got a joiner and a planer and you can, you know, run your slabs through. It's not really that much extra work. But if you're building this thing by hand, laminating is a royal pain in the butt. So I just like to use the widest, flattest boards I can find. In terms of boards for the top, I actually like the boards to be as flat sawn as I can get them. Well, I, I've, honestly, I would prefer them to be perfectly quarter sawn, quarter sawn. But let's face it, the reality of getting 12-inch wide boards perfectly quarter sawn is slim to none in our current environment. In order to get perfectly quarter sawn boards 12 inches wide, you would need a tree that's probably about three feet wide. Um, so that's really not going to happen because the trees just don't, don't grow that big before they cut them down these days. Um, so, but you do have a better chance of getting boards that are close to totally flat sawn. And the reason that I prefer totally flat sawn is that at least if the board is totally flat sawn, you know, sawn far away from the center of the tree, I have a more consistent movement in that board. If you saw a board very close to the center of the tree, let's say, you know, your center cut obviously is going to be perfectly quarter sawn, right? You take the pith out and you get two boards that are totally quarter sawn. The slab that comes off right above that center cut, the problem with that slab is you're going to have some quarter to rift sawn grain at the two outside edges. And in the middle, you're going to have some flat sawn grain. And Quarter sawn material and flat sawn material move in two different, primarily in two different directions. Now, wood moves along the growth rings, tangent to the growth rings, and it also moves across the growth rings in the radial plane. But the movement's not consistent in those two directions. 
Most wood moves much more tangent to the growth rings than it does across the growth rings in the radial plane. So when you get a board that's sawn close to center, but not dead center, and you've got this, you know, little bit of, you know, maybe a third of quarter saw material on the outside edges, on the two outside edges, and then another third of flat saw material in the middle, you've got boards that want to move in different directions. The, the, the quarter sawn sections at the outside edges want to grow in thickness while the flat sawn section in the middle wants to grow in width. And that just causes all kinds of cupping and nastiness. Um, but if you get something that's very close to totally flat sawn, that's sawn up a little farther, your grain is going to move a little bit more uh, predictably, right? Because all of that change wants to happen more tangent to the growth rings. And in order to get uh, like a, a two by 12, that's fairly close to flat sawn. You need a really big wide tree in order to do that. So, um, you know, it's coming from a bigger tree. If that board is very close to totally flat sawn. Um, and that's a good thing because it's, you're, you're going to have more predictability because you don't have that mix of quarter and flat sawn. So in order for the top, because you can't find totally quarter sawn boards, I try to find totally flat sawn boards because at least that way, the grain is going to be more consistent. The movement is going to be more consistent across those boards and they're going to tend to stay flatter and not want to cup as much. Now for cutting up boards into smaller pieces, those center cut boards are ideal because you can take the middle section out and have a piece that's flat sawn that you can use for whatever. It's narrow enough that it's really not going to matter and the grain is going to be fairly consistent. Um, so you can cut it up for stretchers, you can cut it up for support pieces, for legs, whatever. And then you also have those two pieces at the outside that are near close to quarter sawn. And you can glue those back together to make a top. You can use those for smaller pieces for legs and, and such. Um, and it's really, it, I, that's the way that I prefer to, to look for boards when I'm building a workbench. So, um, you know, obviously if you can get it quarter sawn all the way across, that's great. But again, good luck finding construction lumber that that's like that. Um, so, um, I think if you look for some flat sawn material, some really flat sawn material for your top boards, um, it'll, you'll get yourself. Uh, a more stable top than you will if you get boards that are close to center cut where you have a, a mix of quarter sawn and flat sawn in the same board. And then, of course, the other thing is to try and get the cleanest boards you can. You're probably doing that anyway, but, you know, try to avoid knots and grain defects. Um, it's really hard to do in southern yellow pine, um, especially, but, you know, especially try to make sure that the edges of the board are as free from knots as they can be because they're going to want to kink there. You get a lot of grain changes. Um, and that's where most of your grain changes are going to happen is along those knots. So if you can get boards with good straight grain that are, you know, as free of knots as possible, grab those boards. Those are going to be the best boards that you can use for your workbench. So our last question comes from John Plasqualic. John says, asks, does a combination plane replace the need for both the skewed rabbit and small plow planes for cutting rabbits, grooves, and dados? I'm starting to fall down the rabbit hole of hand tools and would like to start phasing out my electric router for cutting dados, grooves, and rabbits. I'm using a router plane for the tasks now. I'm wondering if in, instead of purchasing both a skewed rabbit and a plow plane, if a combination plane with the appropriate blades will fit the bill. 
So the short answer is yes. You, the idea of the combination plane was that it, when it was first invented by Stanley, um, and it was uh, it was designed so that it would be able to plow, it would be able to rabbit with wider by using wider blades, it would be able to do tongue and groove work. Um, and some of the combination planes even came with beading blades so that you could do some molding work. Um, the Stanley 50, I think it's the 55. I'm not real good with the numbers, but, um, even came with, you know, you could even get an optional set of skates that would fit on that plane so that you could do, uh, molding work for hollows and rounds and you could make sash moldings and you can do all these things with this one plane. So the short answer is yes, the plane was designed so that it could replace a rabbit plane and a plow plane and a dado plane. And, and it could do all these different, different things. Um, even moldings with a single plane. The long answer is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but to, to try and be brief about it, essentially, just like with anything else, anytime you try to make one tool function for a lot of different tasks, um, once you make it less specialized and more general, you kind of lose the features that made the specialized tool specialized and why it worked so well. So let me expand on that a little bit. So we talk about, you want to do primarily rabbits, dados, and grooves. Well, a combination plane, the, the, they make great plow planes. Let's start with that. So essentially a combination plane is a plow plane that they've added things to. So if you're looking to get a plow plane, a combination plane is a great place to to look because you could get some additional features that um, you may want to look into down the line and you just start using it as a plow plane and then you can always add things on later. And that was one of the things that um, Stanley was able to sell people on was that, you know, you need a plow plane, so get this one because you can always add these other features later. Um, and they make fine plow planes. I mean, essentially, that's what a combination plane is. It's a plow plane with add-ons. So um, so they're great for, for plowing grooves. Um, now, dado planes and rabbit planes are a little bit different. Combination planes don't have soles. They don't have a, flat, a large flat bottom like a rabbit plane or a dado plane would. They just have a skate because they're plow planes and they're designed to cut grooves of different widths. When you start getting into rabbits, that sole may or may not be important depending on what you're doing. Now, if you're going to cut your um, cut long grain rabbits, you can probably get away with using the combination plane um, and cutting your long grain rabbits. You know, it's, it's not going to matter all that much um, because you can a, a, a rabbit plane that's meant for cutting along the grain usually does not use a scoring iron or a knicker because you don't have to score the grain when you're going with the grain or cutting that rabbit along the grain. So a combination plane will work decently for that task. Um, you know, you just have to get it, set it up properly. And it can be a little bit finicky to do that because you've got to add another skate to support the, the wide iron, um, in addition to your fence. So the planes start to get heavy and they, um, you know, but it'll work. Um, it starts to get a little hairy when you want to cut across the grain. Now, rabbit planes 
and dado planes are skewed. They use skewed irons for a reason. And that's because skewed irons work much better across the grain than straight irons do. Now, if you sharpen that combination plate iron really sharp and you take a really light cut and you score the shoulder of your cross grain rabbit with a, a marking knife or a marking gauge or something nice and deeply before you start the cut, you might be able to do an acceptable job with that combination plane. But the problem is it's going to be a much slower process than it will be if you just had, say, a, a skewed iron um, rabbit plane. Because the skewed iron rabbit plane, essentially, you know, it already has a scoring iron or a knicker. You just set the fence and you plane and it makes beautiful cross grain rabbits. The skewed iron cuts nice and smooth and everything just works really well. Similarly with the dado plane, the dado planes have um, scoring irons or knickers that score both sides of the dado. The iron is skewed, so it makes a, a beautiful dado extremely quickly. Combination planes can be a little tricky to do dados with because, again, you've got to score both sides. Sometimes they come, the combination plane will come with knickers or scoring irons that will do that for you. But my experience using combination planes is that they don't do it that well. And it can be a real pain in the butt to get everything set up just perfectly to cut that dado because you've got to get both skates in just the right position and you've got to get the blade in just the right position and you got to make sure that the knickers are just a hair wider than the blade. Um, you know, so it, it can kind of be a pain in the butt. Um, so yeah, the, the combination plane can do all those things, but they are finicky. They're going to take a lot of setup. They're going to take a lot of practice. They take a lot of messing with the adjustments to get everything tuned in and dialed in just right. And then just when you get it tuned in and dialed in, you've got to change the plane around for another operation. So um, there's always, you know, you're always dialing it in and changing it for something. Um, so I, my preference is for dedicated planes. I'm not a big fan of combination planes. Um, if you're, if you're looking at the, the Lee Valley offering is what I'm guessing. Um, you know, I would actually prefer the small plow plane and the skew rabbit plane would be my preference. And in terms of making dados, um, honestly, there, there are no new planes on the market that do the job well. Um, if you are looking to make dados, my preference is to either just saw the sides and use a router plane to clean it up uh, after chiseling out the waste or get yourself a good old wooden dado plane. I don't know of anybody who's currently making them now, um, but there is no plane on the market better than an old wooden dado plane for making dados. Um, the combination plane doesn't do it anywhere near as well. Um, and, and none of the other planes, you know, plow planes or anything do it near as well as an old dado plane. Those old wooden dado planes are probably the absolute best planes for making dados. Um, so that would be my preference would be, you know, if you're going to buy new planes, get yourself a small plow plane, get yourself a skewed rabbit plane. Um, and uh, and then find an old dado plane and tune it up because I think those are going to do the jobs the best. Um, you know, the combination plane, you can do the beads and, and the other things with it, the tongue and groove. But again, takes lots of setup time, lots of, of finessing and, and finicky work 
Um, and for me, I just don't have the patience to have to readjust everything every time I use the tool. So uh, I'd rather have it set up for the task that I'm going to use it for and, uh, and just move along. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. And please do send in your questions because we're starting to get quite low on them. So today's main topic is tips for improving your hand sawing. Um, you know, a lot of folks like to mill their lumber with machines and, and then you get down to the nitty gritty and, uh, you know, you want to cut all your joinery with hand saws and things like that. And and you have some problems, you know, your dovetails may have some gaps or your you spend a lot of time fitting your tenons because they don't quite fit off the saw. So what I want to talk about today is ways to improve your hand sawing so that, um, you know, you can, you can do more work right off the saw, um, and not have to spend so much time fussing with joinery and, and, uh, and altering things after you finish your saw cuts. So I've got five tips for you today for uh, how to improve your hand sawing. So here we go. So my first tip is to equip yourself properly. Um, so what do I mean by that? Well, first thing you're going to need is a decent saw and, you can't just pick up any old saw and expect that it's going to do everything that you need. You need to be using the right saw for the job. If you're cutting uh, a tenon, let's say, you know, for a workbench, you don't want to be using a dovetail saw to try and saw out that tenon. Um, you're probably going to bottom out the saw before you get to the depth that you need, and it's simply going to take forever. And that saw, is, that cut is probably going to wander. And that's because the teeth are so small that they're clogging up with sawdust before they exit the cut and get a chance to dump that sawdust. And when the teeth clog up with sawdust and shavings, it causes the saw to wander and the cut to wander. Things don't like to stay straight when the, when the teeth get all clogged up. So you really need to make sure you're using the right saw for the job. If you're cutting really big tenons, use a full-size handsaw or use a, a, a large tenon saw with teeth that are big enough to handle the job. On the other hand, if you're cutting tiny little dovetails, you don't want to be doing that with a, a big tenon saw. Sure, you can do it, but if you're trying uh, to cut dovetails in half-inch stock with a saw with really big teeth, it's going to leave a rough, jagged finish, and you're going to have a hard time following a very precise line because you're just not going to be able to see it, um, or the the cut itself is just going to obliterate that line. So, you know, make sure you're using the right saw for the job. The general rule of thumb at least for large saws, is that you want to have about six teeth in the cut at any given time. And that doesn't mean that for, you know, a one-inch thick saw, uh, sorry, a one-inch thick piece of material, like a four-quarter inch piece of material, you want to be using a saw with six teeth per inch because you're typically not using that saw directly straight across the board. You're usually using that saw uh, at some kind of angle, which actually increases the thickness, so to speak. So if you're using a, a crosscut saw or a rip saw in a four-quarter inch board, you might be using an eight-inch, you know, an eight-tooth per inch uh, crosscut saw. Um, 
because of the angle that you're cutting, that you're sawing at. Whereas with a rip saw, you might be using something that's more like five or six teeth per inch because you are almost sawing directly um, perpendicular or directly across the board. So um, in joinery saws, you can get away with teeth that are a little bit smaller. Um, you know, in my uh, dovetail saw, my dovetail saw, I think, is about 17 teeth per inch. Um, and I use that for stock up to about three quarters of an inch thick. If I have to saw dovetails in really thick stuff that's more than three quarters of an inch, I move on up to my sash saw, which is about 13 points per inch. So um, you can get away with saws that are a little bit more finely toothed for joinery. Um, but again, don't go too fine um, because if you're trying to use that dovetail saw with 17 teeth, 17 points per inch to saw dovetails in, you know, a two inch thick piece of stock, um, you know, you're going to run into um, some issues there with the teeth clogging up and having problems. So make sure you're using the right saw for the job. Next, make sure that saw is sharp. Um, and I don't mean kind of sharp right from the store. I mean, it needs to be really sharp. Um, you wouldn't use a, a hand plane that's kind of sharp out of the box. You take it to your stones and you hone it first. Same thing with your chisels. You don't bring a new set of chisels home and put them right to work. You, you hone them up first. Most hand saws, um, if you're buying them from a big box store, are not going to come very sharp to begin with. So if you're, if, and especially if you're buying antique saws, they're definitely not going to be sharp when you get them, no matter what the seller tells you. Um, on the other hand, if you're buying a premium saw, from Bad Axe Toolworks or Lee Nielsen or Lee Valley or any number of other high-end saw makers, those saws will be sharp when you get them, but they're going to get dull just like any other tool in your arsenal. So you need to make sure when you're going to use those saws that they are sharp if you want to be able to get the most performance out of them and the most accuracy. Uh, one way that I like to do that is to just drag the teeth across the palm of my hand. Um, if you stretch your hand out flat and just kind of rest the teeth on there and then move the, try to move the saw forward like you're sawing just very, very lightly. Those teeth, the points of the teeth should grip the skin on the palm of your hand and to kind of tug at it. If the teeth just slide across the palm of your hand, that saw needs sharpening. Um, also make sure that the teeth are set properly. If you've got a saw that the teeth are don't have enough set, that saw is going to bind and it's going to have a hard time clearing sawdust. On the other hand, if you've got a saw that's got way too much set, the saw plate's going to have way too much room to rattle around and move in the kerf and you're going to have a hard time keeping the kerf um, straight and following a straight cut because the, the kerf is just too sloppy and the saw pl blade can just move around too much. So there's a fine balance. You want enough set in that saw so that it doesn't bind, but you don't want the kerf so loose and sloppy that your saw is drifting off of a line. Um, and if it's drifting, it could be that there's too much set, or it could mean that one side is set heavier than the other. Um, so that's something else that you need to keep in mind. So along those lines, if you don't, don't sharpen your saws yourself, which I highly recommend you do, because once you learn how to sharpen your own saws and how to diagnose problems with the way your saws are cutting, I will guarantee you your sawing will get better. But if you don't sharpen your own saws, don't use a local sharpening service uh, that's at the hardware store that specializes in sharpening, you know, table saw blades and lawnmower blades. These places rarely 
know what they're doing when it comes to sharpening a handsaw. And even if they've got a Foley hand filer, a Foley filing machine in the back, and they clamp that thing up and they put your saw in there, um, chances are they're just going to run it through one time, call it done, and charge you 20 bucks. They have no idea whether or not it's actually sharp or not because they're not testing the saw. They're not adjusting the set to see if it needs set or if it has too much set. Um, most of these places just don't know what they're doing when it comes to sharpening a handsaw. So if you're going to send out your saw or take your saw someplace to get sharpened, take it to somebody who specializes in sharpening handsaws. Yes, there are a few of us left, and I know if you've been to my website um, for my handsaw sharpening uh, service recently, you've probably seen the note at the top that says, you know, I'm not not currently taking any new saw orders because uh, of other priorities. Um, so there are very few hand filers left, saw filers left, but they're out there um, and they're busy for a reason because they know what they're doing. Um, they have, they, they test every saw that leaves their shop. They make sure it cuts right. They make sure it's set right. Um, and you're going to get a saw back that performs probably better than it was when it was new. So take your saw to somebody who knows what they're doing with hand saws and not just, you know, the local sharpening service. Um, and have a, a proper saw bench and workbench. You know, it's very hard to do accurate, precise work with hand saws without being able to securely uh, fix the work in place, whether that's on a saw bench or at a workbench. So you need to make sure that you've got a good surface to work at uh, because that's really going to help your sawing as well. Tip number two, use a correct marking tool. Um, when you're breaking down your rough stock, oftentimes it's just, it's really not necessary or it doesn't matter whether that cut is square or not. You're just trying to get that piece of wood a little bit, a little bit shorter. There are, there are tricks and a, I, I dare I say there are parlor tricks for sawing straight. Um, some people will will say, you know, to use the reflection uh, in the in the saw blade. You know, if you've got a highly polished saw, you can look at the reflection of the wood in the saw blade and you can use that to help you to saw square because if the edge of the board makes a straight line through the reflection in, on the other side of the saw, then it's square. And if, um, if the saw is, if, if the reflection is a perfect 90 degrees, then you're sawing at a perfect 45 degrees. There's a couple problems with this. Number one, you're not measuring or, or really checking to see if it's making a perfect uh, straight line, that reflection, because you can't. And similarly, you're not checking to see if there, that, uh, if the reflection's making a perfect 90 degrees when you're sawing at 45 degrees, again, because you can't. Um, there's no way to actually check that. And chances are, if you need to saw a perfect 45 degrees, you need it to be perfect. So just using the reflection in the, the saw blade isn't going to get you there. If you're making a mitered frame, you need that 45 degrees to be dead on 45 degrees. So there's no point in using the reflection because it's not going to get you close enough to where you need to be anyway. And if it does, it's luck. Um, you know, I, I've seen this trick before, and to me, it's really nothing more than that. It's a parlor trick and nothing more. Um, you know, if you're trying to get better at sawing, mark your work. Um, if you're, 
if you're doing rough cross cuts or rough rips, mark it with a pencil and try to follow that pencil line. The more you focus on the line, the better you're going to get at sawing. Don't worry about the parlor tricks, the reflection trick and things like that. Um, because again, they're, they're really not things that are going to help you to improve your woodworking. You're, you know, you're trying to learn to follow a line, to keep your saw plumb. Um, and these are things that, yes, you know, in theory they work, but in actual practice for people who are, are doing the work with hand tools day in and day out, they're not using these tricks because there really are nothing more than parlor tricks. Um, now, so, so use a pencil, you know, or a marker or something when you're, when you're uh, marking your rough lumber and use a square, draw that line in with a pencil or a marker along your square and try to follow the line. Even though it doesn't matter if that is square, it's practice. It's good practice for following the line and that's going to pay off later on down the road. For joinery, on the other hand, you want to ditch the pencil. It's fine if you want to uh, color in your, your knife line or your marking gauge line with a pencil so it's a little easier to see. But ultimately, you want to be using a gauge or a knife to mark out for your joinery. Because not only does using a knife or a gauge uh, make a more precise line where you want it, if you use that line correctly the saw will actually jump to that line. And I did a video on this several years ago um, about sawing accurately where, you know, I actually demonstrated by, by scoring a nice deep knife line across the grain of a board, like if you're going to saw a tenon shoulder, when you start that saw cut on the waist side of the line, even if you start it away from the knife line, as soon as you start sawing, those fibers break away and the saw jumps over to the knife line. So use that knife for your joinery, even if you can't see it. Go ahead and put the pencil there afterwards so you can see it. But use the knife line because that knife line, or as Paul Sellers likes to call it, a knife wall, um, it will help to actually guide your saw. Your saw will jump into that line. So go ahead and use it. Tip number three is to work with your body. Now, our eyes are actually quite good at seeing plumb and level. But if you want to get the most benefit from that built-in level in your brain, you need to be able to position yourselves to see when things aren't quite lined up right. To saw accurately, proper body position is absolutely imperative. So you need to line up correctly, and then your brain will naturally want to keep the saw plumb and square. But if you don't position yourself correctly the natural tendency is that your that that natural tendency to for your brain to want to line things up it's actually going to work against you if you're not positioned properly for example let's say you want to you're you're going to saw a line and you stand a little bit too far left of your your line that you marked in your board as you start to saw your body's natural tendency is going to cause you to pull the heel of the saw closer to you, which is going to pull the cut out of square. It's also going to cause you to tilt the top of the saw over out of plumb. So, and your body wants to do that. It's because the, the, there's a natural position that your body wants to be in, that your hand wants to be in when you're sawing. And if you're not in a place where that natural position is going to follow the, the cut line, you're going to pull it out of the cut line. 
And oftentimes to counter this, you'll fight that internal level to try and follow the line. But sawing that way is rarely successful and rarely, uh, rarely consistent. So instead, you want to focus on proper body position and lining yourself up. So what I suggest is you get in your total, get in your whole body in sync, right? And I know it sounds kind of hokey, but just hear me out for a second. So grip your saw handle with a three-fingered grip, pointing that index finger down the side of the handle at the toe of the saw. Now, I know a lot of you probably already do this, but some of you may not. Maybe some of you are gripping with a, a four-fingered grip. And if you currently do that, you're going to have a tendency to grip too tightly and your wrist is going to have a tendency to flex more. Pointing your finger down the side of the handle is like telling your brain, this is where I want to saw, right along that line there. And it doesn't just work for Western saws. When I use my Japanese saw, I grip the handle with two hands and point both index fingers from both hands down the length of that handle. And I find that I saw much more accurately with that saw than I do if I wrap all eight fingers around the handle like you would, you know, like a baseball bat. So use the three-fingered grip. The three-fingered grip is going to force you to grip a little looser, and it's just going to for and it's going to cause your wrist to stay a little bit more rigid, which is what you want. You don't want a, a lot of flex in your wrist. You don't want your wrist moving all over the place. Now, once you're gripping the saw correctly, you want to get your arm and your shoulder directly in line with the cut line and position your eye right above the saw. And if the cut line is not perpendicular to the face of the board, turn your body so that you are not perpendicular to the face of the board either. It's more important that you're in line with the cut line because that's where you're going to be sawing. Um, you know, so even if the cut line's not perpendicular to the board, um, line yourself up with that cut line. Otherwise, you're going to pull the saw off course if you try to line up with the face of the board. Now, as a right-handed sawyer, your eye should be positioned, your right eye should be positioned above the back of the saw. I'm not going to get into discussion on eye, domin eye dominance because it really doesn't matter. I don't care if you're right-handed but left eye dominant. It makes no difference. If you are right-handed, I want your right eye over the top of that saw, sort of like you're sighting down a rifle. If you're left-handed and you're sawing with your left hand, get your left eye over the top of the saw. The, if you close your off eye, right? So if you're right-handed and you get your eye, your right eye positioned above the top of the saw and you close your left eye and only look through your right eye, the only thing you should see is the back of the saw. Similarly, if you're left-handed, you have your left eye over the top of the saw. If you close your right eye, the only thing you should see out of your left eye is the back of the saw. If you're positioned properly, your arm, your wrist, your hand, your elbow, your shoulder, and your eye are lined up properly in line with the plane of that saw, and you close your left eye, if you're right-handed, you close your left eye, and you can see the side of the saw blade through your right eye, that cut is not plumb. You should not be seeing any part of the side of the saw blade. All you should be seeing is you should be staring right down the back of that saw, just like you're sighting a rifle. Okay? That's how I want you to set yourself up. And that's the way that it, I've found that works best with your body because that's going to, your body's naturally then going to want to keep the saw plumb in that type of position. So my fourth tip for you is correcting a stray cut. 
So even if you position yourself correctly or you think you did, miscuts are going to happen. When a cut starts to go off the line, immediately stop. Don't keep cutting thinking you can twist things back into place because you can't. You're just going to make it worse. To get back on track, the first thing you need to do is readjust your body position. Reassess. Is my wrist and my arm and my shoulder and my elbow and my sawing eye, are they positioned properly in line with that cut line in a single plane? If they're not, reposition yourself so that they are. Once you have repositioned yourself, lower the angle attack of the saw. So if you're working at a saw bench, for example, and you're sawing down at like a 60 degree angle, I want you to to drop the heel of the saw till you're sawing almost parallel to the length of the board. What that's going to do is allow you to slowly bring that cut back. Think about it in terms of a hand plane. The smoothing plane is the shortest one, but you don't use that to straighten or joint the edges of boards. You go to a joiner plane. Why? Because it's longer. And that longer plane helps you to make things straighter. Similarly, with a handsaw, when you drop the heel of that saw down, you're putting more teeth into the kerf and you're making things straighter. That is going to allow you to straighten that cut out and get back on your cut line. Once you get yourself back on line, then you can raise the heel of the saw back up again and continue along the cut. But by lowering the attack of the saw to the face of the board, you lengthen the kerf. You make the kerf longer and that uh, allows you to make minor corrections. And that is going to help you get back on track um, and keep you straighter overall. So finally, my last tip for today is to don't get good at bad habits. Now, when it comes to using hand tools, everything is about technique, right? Good technique is everything. It doesn't matter how much time you spend using your saws, your chisels, your planes. If you, if you're using bad technique with those tools, all you're doing is getting good at bad habits. So to really become proficient, the secret isn't just to use them more, but it's to improve your technique and practice better technique, not just work with the tools more. There's a lot of folks that will will tell you that a saw is not a rifle and that the techniques that I've just discussed really are not correct. But whether they're correct or not, according to those folks, um, I've proven time and time again helping students in classes and through the videos that I've made on this subject um, that this technique works for a lot of people. I've had a lot of feedback over the years from people who told me that as soon as they started lining up their eye over top of the saw and they practice keeping their eye and their shoulder and their elbow and their arm and their wrist and their hand and the saw all in that single plane and aligned with the cut line that their sawing improved dramatically. So I would suggest just try it. If you're having trouble sawing straight, just give it a try um, before you dismiss it and, and say, well, you know, so-and-so said that the that whole technique is is bubkiss because uh, you're not supposed to treat a saw like a rifle and sight down it, you know, whatever. Maybe that person doesn't have to do that. Maybe they've been sawing their whole life and they're, and they're good at it. Um, but if you struggle with it, just give it a try and see if it doesn't help you. 
because it's helped a lot of my students in classes and it's helped a lot of people who have watched my videos. I've had people come back to me after watching and say, hey, thank you. My sawing improved dramatically after trying what you demonstrated. So uh, at least just give it a try. And a great way to practice these type of mechanics is to make the cross cuts and the rips for some of your projects with longer hand saws. Longer hand saws are going to give you more reference. Um, you've got a longer line to work to. You've got a longer saw to line up with that longer line. Um, so you've got a lot more visual aid than you do, say, in a, in a little half-inch long dovetail cut. You know, and you don't have to do, you don't have to cut up all of your material. You know, if you're working with maple or wenge or bubinga or some ridiculously hard wood, yeah, maybe you don't want to make those rip cuts uh, in that material. But a lot of projects have secondary wood. You know, maybe you've got drawer sides or drawer bottoms or case backs. And oftentimes those secondary woods are things like pine and poplar, and they're quite soft. Um, those woods are real easy to, to saw. They're very easy to rip. I actually quite enjoy using my rip saw in pine and poplar because I can saw two to three inches per stroke in those types of woods. Um, and it's, it's actually pretty fun to use my large hand saws in those types of materials. And those parts, you know, if they're secondary parts, they're usually not seen in the finished piece. So if you make a little mistake, it's really not a big deal. That mistake is easily hidden because it's just a case back or it's just a drawer back or whatever. And, you know, if you're not a hand tool person, and I understand that not everybody is, you know, you've got band saws and table saws for a reason, but try sawing with a long hand saw once in a while. It's really one of the best ways to develop the, the coordination and muscle memory needed to become better with your joinery saws, uh, as I mentioned before, because you've got a longer saw and a longer line and just a longer site of reference in general. And by using those saws, you're going to ingrain that muscle memory and you can focus on, okay, get the saw lined up with my hand, with my wrist, my elbow, my shoulder, my eye, etc. Get everything lined up with that cut line and then let's, you know, make that locomotive steam engine motion with my arm just straight back and forth and, and make that cut. And you can focus on it because it's not a, um, a critical cut to the project. So you can focus more on the mechanics of the sawing and the mechanics of the motion um, than you can on trying to make sure that the part itself comes out perfect. And I guarantee you, if, uh, if you practice with your longer saws, you're going to find that your sawing with your joinery saws is going to get better as well. So give it a try. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. My preferred method, of course, is for you to record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. This way you don't have to just listen to me the whole time. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 and that accomplishes the same, same uh, end result. Or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt022. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. 
Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do those things in the show notes and at brfindwoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.